So I'll never forget my first Christmas season as a senior pastor. So you have to understand, as a senior pastor, Christmas is kind of like the Super Bowl. I mean, you're building up to Christmas. And as a new senior pastor, I could not wait to preach my first Christmas Eve services. I was incredibly excited. I was planned and ready to go. But then about two weeks before Christmas, I was hit with a depression that I had never known before. Over these last few weeks, I've given you different insights into who I am and our story and how Grace has been involved in my life and ministry and my wife's life and ministry. Um, you've probably picked up on now that I'm a pretty even-keeled guy. It's, it's kind of hard to get me real up and down about much of anything. And so for me to fall into a two-week period of depression, I knew that something was wrong. But no matter what I did, I just couldn't get out of that funk. We had three Christmas Eve services planned for Christmas Eve, and I remember, I'll never forget, struggling through that first sermon. But the reason I'll never forget that experience is really what happened next. After I preached, after I got through the message, I went and sat down. The worship team came on the stage and began singing the closing song. And I remember that darkness, that depression just immediately lifted up off of me. It was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And then a few months later at Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Basically, the exact same thing happened again. Two weeks beforehand, I fell into this funk and this depression, and then I got through Easter, and it was gone. And from that moment forward, as a new senior pastor, I realized that each and every year, as we come to these very important seasons of Christmas and Easter, I have got to ask people to be praying for me as I prepare for those times. Because the truth of the matter is, is that we are engaged in a very real and intense spiritual battle. And here in our study of Ephesians, as we wrap up our study of this book, we see that we are engaged in a great spiritual war. The problem we have is that our enemy is unseen. His tactics are difficult to recognize, and yet he is there whether we see him or not. I'm reminded of the great words of C.S. Lewis in the opening of the Screwtape Letters. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, which we tend to do. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. On our subject for today, we're going to conclude our study here in the book of Ephesians, and we see that where Paul ends this letter is on this theme of spiritual warfare. He's walked the church in Ephesus through uh, the victory that Jesus has won, and now he reminds them that they're entering into enemy territory. 
But the good news is that the victory has already been won, and so what the church in Ephesus is called to do is to armor up, to stand firm, and to pray. And to get there, you can see we're going to look at four things there on your outline. We're going to look first at our posture in this battle, this spiritual warfare in which we're engaged. We're going to see our posture, then we'll see our protection in this battle. We'll see our priority in the battle, and then finally we'll see our peace in the battle. So grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians chapter 6, and let me read for you first, number one on your outline, our posture. Ephesians 6, let me read for you verses 10 through 13. Paul says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Our posture that we see here, repeated three times, is that word, that phrase, stand firm. Our posture in the battle is to stand firm. But notice what Paul does first in verse 10. He reminds them of what he's already told them in the first part of Ephesians. He reminds them that their strength in this battle, the victory in this battle, does not come from themselves, but it comes from what Jesus has done. Notice verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Remember in Ephesians 2, we saw that what we bring to the table in this equation, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no power, there's no life inside of us. And so Paul reminds the church in Ephesus that any chance of victory they have in this spiritual battle begins and ends only in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then notice what he says in verse 11. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And here's the command, put on the full armor of God, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. But notice why. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here we see the first use of that phrase, stand firm. Our posture in the battle, is to stand firm in what Jesus has already accomplished. And notice why this is important. We're to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The word for schemes here means methods and craftiness. It describes a deceptive, especially a systematic, orderly attack. We're reminded that our enemy is smart. He's scheming. Here in just a little bit, we're going to go outside and we're going to watch the Dallas Cowboys beat the Denver Broncos. Amen. (laughs) But in preparation for this football game, I promise you that both teams have a game plan. 
They watched game film on the opposing team and on all of their players. They know every player's weaknesses and tendencies. They know where each team is susceptible to weakness. And likewise, Satan has a game plan for each and every one of us. He knows where we're weak. He knows where we're susceptible. He knows when and how and where to attack because he's scheming. The biblical truth is that we are in a war with an intelligent enemy who's looking to ruin us. But then notice what Paul does in verse 12. He reminds us of who our true enemy is. Notice what he says there in verse 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a couple of things I want you to take note of here. First is that word struggle. Uh, that word struggle is often translated as wrestle. And growing up in Oklahoma, uh, I grew up going to watch uh, the Oklahoma State Cowboys wrestle. My dad and I had season tickets, and Oklahoma State is the premier wrestling program in the country. It's the real orange, no matter what Andy Wildman says. Uh, speaking of the devil, Andy Wildman is here. <laughs> That was too easy, Andy, I'm sorry. Um, but jokes aside, we're engaged in a wrestling match. A true wrestling match is seven minutes of intensity. And likewise, the battle in which we are engaged is intense and real. But notice what Paul says. He says our wrestling, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And this is something we have to remember, especially coming out of a few challenging years, we have to be reminded in the church that we are not fighting against one another. Uh, if you're a brother or sister in Christ, we are on the same team and we can disagree, but we're not fighting against one another. I love what Ray Steadman says here. He says, spiritual warfare is not about the struggle of man against man. It's not a struggle between human beings. It's a struggle within human beings. The battle is not against people, but against unseen spiritual powers. And every man, every woman, every child, everywhere is a target. The devil has each one of us in his crosshairs. The whole human race is opposed by principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. So Paul reminds us here, that our wrestling, our struggle, our enemy are these world forces and powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. By the way, when you see this list here in verse 12, many scholars believe that uh, Paul perhaps is laying out here some sort of demonic hierarchy. Um, I wish we knew more about that, but we don't. Um, perhaps it is, perhaps it's not, but what we do know for sure, what we can know with certainty is that there is a strategic attack taking place against us. Satan and his demons are strategically wrestling against us, opposing everything Paul has been laying out here in the book of Ephesians. And so in light of that wrestling, in light of that struggle, in light of that war, the posture we're called to here is to stand firm. Notice verse 13. 
Therefore, take up the full armor of God, which again, we'll see here in just a minute, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, here's our posture to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. That word for stand firm means to offer a resistance. Dr. Honer says it describes the one who's not pushed around but holds firmly to his or her position. This is not about victory or defeat. It is about holding fast to territory already won by Christ. Again, our posture in this battle, we're never told to rush into battle and wage war against Satan. We're told to resist him, to stand firm in the work that Christ has already accomplished. This is our posture as we are engaged in this great spiritual war. We're commanded now three times to stand firm. But we can only stand firm if we're well protected. You only go into war and stand firm if you've got great armor And that's what Paul gets at next as we look at number two on your outline, verses 14 through 17. Paul says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here we see real famous verses most of us are probably familiar with. Six pieces of armor that Paul lists here. Let's take a look quickly, one by one. The first piece of armor we see there in verse 14. Paul says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Uh, The piece of armor that Paul has in mind here is a belt, and a Roman soldier would wear a belt, and this would really hold everything together. It was an essential piece of his armor. And Paul says that for us, truth is the belt that holds everything together. We have to, of course, remember that Satan is a deceiver and the father of lies, and All the way since the book of Genesis, his tactic, his strategy, number one, is to get us to doubt and to question the promises of God, the truth of God. And so we begin here, Paul begins here by reminding us of the truth. The second piece of armor Paul mentions here is the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. Stand firm, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. A breastplate, of course, is a crucial piece of armor because it protects your vital organs, protects the core of who you are. And notice what Paul says here. He says, this, he describes the breastplate of righteousness. I think he's describing here the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to our account. The very righteousness of Christ that is credited to your account, to my account as a believer in Jesus So once again, Paul, like he often does, is he starts by reminding the Ephesians of the gospel. And for those of you here in this room or those of you watching online, this is an important piece for you to keep in mind here, that the good news of the gospel 
even in light of a dark world in which we live, even though we're engaged in a spiritual warfare, we have to be reminded of the truth of the very righteousness of Christ. That when a person puts their faith in Jesus, God has imputed the very righteousness of Christ onto their account. And so when God looks on you, he no longer sees your sin, but he sees the very righteousness of your son. That's the good news of the gospel. And those of you here watching online, if you've not believed that message, I want to invite you and encourage you to put your faith in him. The third piece of armor that Paul lists here are the shoes of peace. Verse 15, stand firm having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Good shoes, of course, were helpful for any soldier who's going to stand firm during combat. And Paul here connects shoes with this idea of peace, the peace we have with God, the peace of God, which is the foundation upon which we stand. The fourth piece of armor Paul lists here is the shield of faith, verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Again, it's pretty obvious that a shield was important. It would protect soldiers from flaming arrows. And Paul says here that our shield is a shield of faith. Once again, this kind of gets to Satan's strategy and tactic in getting us to doubt and to question God's word. But our shield of faith is a reminder of, to believe in what God has said, what he has spoken. The fifth item Paul lists here is the helmet of salvation, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. The helmet protects the head, protects the mind. And here I believe Paul, when he's talking about the helmet of salvation, is referring to our future salvation, that no matter what happens, no matter how difficult the battle our salvation is secure, and we have that to look forward to. Sixth and finally, we see the sword of the Spirit, verse 17. Stand firm and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Many pastors and commentators have noted that the sword is really the only offensive weapon in this list. Um, the word of God is our greatest defense and offense, often against the schemes of Satan. This is why it's vitally important for us to know the word, to study the word, to meditate upon it. So we've seen that we're engaged in a great spiritual war. We've seen that our posture is to stand firm, to hold our ground. We've seen now that we are well protected in this battle, but there's still one thing we have to do, one more charge of the Apostle Paul as we think about this great spiritual war in which we're engaged. And it's really our priority in this battle. It's to pray. Let me read for you verses 18 through 20. Notice the repetition as I go through these verses of the word pray and petition. Verse 18, Paul says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit 
And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf, notice, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Again, notice how many times repetition, repetition, repetition here, Paul mentions the idea of praying and petition. Dr. Honer, again, has, he said, if, you know, if Paul just told us the items of our protection, our armor, now he tells us how to get dressed. Uh, we get dressed as we pray. Prayer is a priority when it comes to the spiritual battle. There's a few things here that I want you to take note of in Paul's emphasis in this priority of prayer. First, Paul says that we're to use prayer and petition. Prayer and petition. And now perhaps the word prayer here is more of a general term and petition is more specific. That's how many commentators have described the difference here between prayer and petition. But we're to do both. We're to pray very generally and we're also to pray very specifically. The second thing I want you to see here is that We're to pray at all times. Verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Prayer is supposed to be a regular habit and routine for us as we're engaged in this battle. The third thing I want you to see here in these verses is that we're to pray in the Spirit. Verse 18, pray at all times in the Spirit. This means we're to pray under the guidance and direction of the Spirit, leaning on Him, even in those times when we don't know exactly what to pray. The fourth thing I want you to take note of here in these verses, there in verse 18, Paul says we're to pray and we're to be on the alert. We're to be on the alert, we're to be watching. Because again, our enemy is smart, he's crafty. He's strategic, so we're to be paying attention. I'm on the alert. The fifth thing, Paul says, we're to be praying with all perseverance, with all perseverance. I appreciate this one because for me, prayer is one of those things that's easy to fall by the wayside. When life gets busy, when times get tough, it's easy to allow prayer to be the thing that kind of slips away. But Paul here reminds us to pray with all perseverance, to don't give up. And the sixth thing I want you to see here in these verses and this priority of prayer is that we're to pray for all the saints. He says there at the end of verse 18, pray with petition for all the saints. And then notice as well, he throws himself in the mix just in case. He says, pray on my behalf. This is the Apostle Paul we're talking about here. That utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains and that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Even Paul recognizes that he needs prayer. That in this spiritual battle, it's no guarantee that even the Apostle Paul is gonna be courageous enough to preach the gospel. He needs the people's prayer in Ephesus to pray for him that God would give him confidence and boldness in sharing this message. 
But what I want you to see here is that prayer should be a priority for us. You could say that it is our war cry in this battle. I love what one scholar says. He says, while Paul does not specifically mention prayer as part of our armor, in this context, it is most certainly a warfare strategy. Prayer is portrayed as something a soldier does. It is, in short, an act of war. And I like that perspective. Prayer is an act of war. Listen, prayer is one of those things, to tell you the truth, I don't really understand how it works. I don't understand how in the sovereignty of God all of this works. All I know is that it does work and that I don't pray as much as I should. But what we see here in Ephesians is that we're engaged in a great spiritual war. Our posture is to stand firm. Our protection is what we have in Christ. And our priority in this battle is to pray. And in light of all of this, this challenging message, I love that the Apostle Paul ends this letter on a note of peace. Let's read together. Let me read for you verses 21 through 24. Concluding his letter, Paul says, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. I love what Paul does here. I mean, he just laid out this heavy message of spiritual warfare, and we have a great, you know, war against us. And yet he ends his epistle on a note of peace and encouragement. Remember that the Apostle Paul is in prison when he's writing this. By appearances, it might look as though this battle is lost, but it's not. Because we know that the gospel is progressing even with Paul there in prison. That God's plan is still alive and well and working. And part of this, Paul knows that the church in Ephesus is concerned about him, and so he sends this man Tychicus to them, and he says, notice again, verse 22, I'm sending him to you for the very purpose so that you may know about us, and he may comfort or encourage your hearts. Paul wants the church in Ephesus to be encouraged. Because again, in light of everything we've seen in the book of Ephesians, we know how the story ends. Notice as well, there in verses 23 and 24, kind of this typical Pauline ending, he says, peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. We see here a, remi a reminder of the peace and grace that began this letter. I got this from Dr. Honer as well, that the book of Ephesians begins in verse 2 with the reminder of God's grace and God's peace. And Paul ends this letter with a reminder of God's grace and God's peace. And it's only by the grace of God that we have peace with God, even in the midst of difficult circumstances.
So this is the book of Ephesians. Uh, in closing, there's just three things I want to share with you, some final thoughts here as we conclude our study of this book together. The first is this. I want you to again see in these verses who our enemy is and who our enemy is not. Commentator Mark Roberts says this. He says, let us remember that in this war, we're not seeking to defeat people, but to lead them to the Savior. We shine the light of the gospel into the world so that those who are in darkness might become light so that those who sleep might awake to new life in Christ. I think this is a fitting reminder for us today as we see the darkness of the world around us. We have to be reminded of the fact that unbelievers are not our enemy. In fact, we are like Paul here says, we are ambassadors for the gospel. This is our mission. This is our mission field to reach the lost with the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done. The second thing I want you to see here as we conclude this study is that although the battle is real, we know that Jesus has won. We know how this story ends. This is the good news of the gospel. This is why we can go out in the world with confidence because we have the only message that takes people from death to life. We have the only message that offers true hope for this world in which we live. And we need to remember to rely on him and the strength of his power as we go out. But the third thing I want you to see here is that there is a real war going on. This is not science fiction. It's not the naivete of pre-modern man. There is a real unseen war that goes on around us. But I love the words of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He says this, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. But Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling all of us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. We are an enemy-occupied territory. But Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, and we are called to take part in this great campaign of sabotage. And the way we do that is to armor up, to stand firm, and to pray. Armor up, stand firm, and to pray. There on your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider, but your one thing for this week is this. If you have time for nothing else, the one thing I'd ask of you is to spend some time quietly reflecting on this passage and ask God to give you wisdom and strength for the battle to help you armor up, stand firm, and pray. Listen, I've loved uh, going through this series with you here in the book of Ephesians. I hope that in it, You've gotten to know me a little bit better as your new senior pastor, but more importantly, I hope, I hope that you've gotten to know your Savior a bit more. Um, I do believe that it's going to become more and more difficult for the church to live out our faith in the years to come. We are engaged in a great spiritual war with a real and powerful enemy. But the good news is that Jesus has won the victory, and what we're called here to do is to armor up, stand firm, and pray. So let's do that together. Father, thank you. 
that even in the midst of a difficult world, a dark world, a world where Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, we thank you, Father, as we've seen here in Ephesians, that although we were dead in our transgressions and sins, you have made us alive together. You have co-raised us and co-seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Father, thank you that you have given us everything we need for spiritual victory in this life. Thank you that you've entrusted to us the only message that can take people from death to life. Father, thank you that no matter what happens, we know we're secure in you, that we can rejoice together in the God of our salvation and help us as ambassadors for Christ to courageously, like Paul asks here, to boldly proclaim this message, to armor up, to stand firm, and to pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.